Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Welcome back to another episode of Shared History Under the Kilt. It's your favourite Scottish history podcast where we... I don't know why I'm doing my NPR voice. I mean, we're I gonna, mean it's pretty impressive. <laughs> we're going to wander through the historical heather together uh, this week oh, on what? NPR. Yeah, walking through the historical heather together. Right? I'm. <laughs> a, give me an award. I am a poet. <laughs> That's it. I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to leave now. I mean, no, I need you here to appreciate me. Okay. <laughs> I need well, the validation. Well, it's very good. Rubber stamp. Douche. I'm Adam uh, McNamara. <laughs> I'm Natalie Younger. Yes, and we are your hosts on this uh, podcast of lesser known Scottish history tidbits. Little tasty morsels. Yes, indeed. indeed. And how are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, it's almost... It's almost spook- spooky season. Oh, don't. Um, oh, come on, we had that last week with, with Nick. Just uh, you know. okay. You know what? <laughs> you in Scotland, ghosts are everywhere always. Um, oh yeah, yeah, of course they are. Yeah. And for me, it's always it's almost. I just really like fall. Oh, <laughs> well, I do like that as well. I just want to eat admit. soup every day. And right now, it's like ninety. It's been in the nineties Fahrenheit. Um, everyone who's like in Celsius is like, 90? How are you alive? Um, Do you have buns? <laughs> everywhere. Um, but, so I just want it to like cool down so that I can not be uncomfortable while eating soup. That's you know, so I want. I, I was in my wardrobe just before, because I'm in London just now. I don't know if everyone, and some, the, one, some people with sharp ears might hear that I'm in a bit of an echo. Might thing, hear that. The sounds of old London town. <laughs> old London town. Um, it's just the place that I'm staying in is like this quite high ceilings. And I, I've tried my best to quell that. But uh, before I came down, I was looking at what to bring. And I was like, no, London's going to be roasting like the whole time. I might as well just bring shorts. And um, I looked at, I saw some of my autumn jackets and I was just like, hello, friends. Soon, soon I'll get to wear you. <laughs> I just have so many nice sweaters. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like tired of just being, <laughs> I'm just tired of feeling damp always. <laughs> yeah, it's minging. Oh gosh. What is going on? What is going on? Um, the planet is on fire and we're all gonna die. <laughs> oh, this yeah, is an is uplifting a, <laughs> It's a really uplifting uh podcast. Well, while while that happens we can listen to this podcast, which is yeah. really good, I think. It'll it'll soothe us. <laughs> So anyway, talking about hot and sweatiness, Yes. what's under the kilt today? Uh, well, talking about hot and sweaty, uh, <laughs> underneath my kilt, I have a scotch bonnet. What, to make it even hotter. Yeah, just, uh, you, need, you need a little spice. Yeah. Have you seen that guy on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. I discovered reels on Instagram recently. I know I'm 44. And I was like, 
like four hours later, I was like, what is happening to my life? I'm just watching all these reels. And there was a guy who just eats really hot chilies and scotch bonnets were one, of, were, were one of them. And I was like, how come he's not like screaming his head off? Because he doesn't have taste buds or any <laughs> nerves left in his tongue. <laughs> That's, That's it. That's it. He couldn't speak right enough. <laughs> Uh, I was just inspired. I stepped out into my garden today and the, the peppers, we don't have any scotch bonnets, but the peppers are popping. And I was like, that's what's under the kilt, a scotch bonnet. I don't think I've ever had one actually. I know. Well, I have. And, um, and I, I couldn't actually feel my chin. It was like really, really spicy. Is it still there? Yeah. And I was like scared to eat anything else. And he's like bit through my lip or whatever, you know? I mean, that's how it affected me. Yep. Well, um. <laughs> I have all that tasty capsaicin uh, under my kilt right now. So, well, good, good. I'm glad. Is I that what's under not... the kilt today? Did I? No, did I... don't be silly. <laughs> today, our guest is a postdoctoral researcher. So, Nat, it's our first official guest of history. <laughs> Everyone else who comes on is just like, I know a thing, and I'm going to come on and talk about it. And you're like, yay! And now we've got a proper history buff. Teacher. I mean, it's it's more than a buff if it's a career. Oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, a postdoctoral researcher based uh, in Scottish literature at the University of Glasgow. Um, she completed her PhD in 2020 and now works on a range of projects exploring aspects of Scottish literary culture in the 18th century. Well, this is going to be good. I'm so excited. As well as undergraduate teaching, which is possibly an upgrade on her previous life as a high school English teacher, as she now doesn't have to do parents' evenings. She just has to come on podcasts and entertain the masses. <laughs> Folks, You win our... some, you lose some. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you know, give a one take with another, you know. Um, uh, Folks, it's our greatest pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Moira Hansen. Dr. Moira Hansen, welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi, guys. It's <laughs> fantastic to be here. Good. You had to sit through all that gubbins. <laughs> and try not to laugh. I've been practicing my silent laughing now. Well, see, that's something I need to do. That's something I need to do. I'm like, Adam, when I listen to these back, I'm like, Adam, shut up. You laugh, you're laughing all the time. The listeners would be outraged if they didn't get to hear Adam giggles throughout the podcast. I just So I have to really not be a super serious academic then. I have to make him laugh at some point. Well, I mean, you know, it depends what you're here to talk about. But, you know, we'll we'll soon see. We'll soon find out. Um, I am very excited to have you on. I love literature and i love things i just um (laughs) books and words i love books and words i like them a lot um so i'm super excited to hear what you have to bring have i'm super excited to hear what you have brought for us today but before we dive into that i just want to i just want to talk shop and i'm we're just curious like if you love history and if you've always loved history, or if you actually hate history, and we've brought you here against your will, um, <laughs> these are these are the things that I want to know. Uh, yeah, I I love history. I love history. I I got a little bit left behind when it came to history at school because when I was at school, I wanted to be a doctor, a medical doctor. I was like, you did so it. 
Yeah, I did it. I did it. Just not the kind of doctor I thought, you know, all those, those years ago. Um, but you know, so I did. I did the kind of serious stuff like like sciences and 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 modern studies, and I kind of left history behind. And when I um, when I became a mum, I said, you know what, I'm kind of done with science and things. You know, well, not done with it, but I'm kind of. I want to leave it behind. I want to go back to literature, which was my other great love in school. But you know, you don't need to be able to close read a poem to be a doctor. Um, and given that. I then didn't become a doctor. I was like, well, let's go and close read some poems, you know? Um, <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, kind of picking that stuff up, it's like it, it opened everything up because you're then not reading things the way you read them in school, where it's let's look at the text on the page and look at, you know, drill right down to what all these words and things are. Suddenly it's like, right, let's think about the writer and let's think about the context that they were writing in and what it was they were writing about. And suddenly this opened all these doors um, into history and into you know all these fantastic other worlds that people were writing about and the times that they were writing about and the politics and society and yeah so I, I, I absolutely love it and um, although I'm based in the department of Scottish literature an awful lot of what I do is much more about the culture and the historical contexts that, that things are being produced in because it's that idea that history's always written after the fact yeah. But literature's written in the moment, mm -hmm. you know. So you get this fantastic reflection of of what's actually happening at the time, and depending on who it is you're looking at, what level of society it is that we're getting um, a reflection of. You know, is it the kings and their castles? Because we, you know, I'm a huge fan of all things Tudor as well, um, and and I love you know all the Henry the Eighth and his wives and things. But then you want to know what the little dirty guy down the street was up to as well, and and. <laughs> You know the, the the apprentices and um you know what was it like to be a housewife in the 18th century and things so you, you know just getting all these different stories because that's what i love really is people's stories yeah this makes me so happy because i literally got in a fight uh with my partner the other day because we were talking about books that we had read recently and and we got in a fight about He's, this is the stupidest thing I think my husband has ever said. And I'm going to tell every, everyone in the world that he, <laughs> that he said it. Um, he basically said that he doesn't like how everyone reads so much into fiction. And that, and that I can't remember exactly what his argument was, but he was like, sometimes it's just a story. It's not like an allegory. It's not like... There's no deeper meaning. It's just a story. And people pull out these themes because you're taught to in school. Like you're taught to like, what are the themes? What are the archetypes? And he's like, sometimes it's just a story. And it doesn't mean anything other than it's a story. And I was like, I will fight you to the death on this because there's a reason that the person is telling the story. So there's always like, his his argument was that he doesn't, he hates when people try to assume what the author intended with the words instead of just letting the words be the words. And I understand from the way that we were taught literature in our, in our academic upbringing, I understand where he's coming from, where you don't, you can turn that side of your brain off and just enjoy a story. But I also was like, there's, but like, it's never, it's, there's the, th we're not inventing the themes. <laughs> we're no, just pointing no, them out. Yeah. I mean, we, we start, you know, humans as a species 
from our very very earliest days have told stories you know the 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 cave paintings are our first documentation of telling stories probably of hunting the woolly mammoth or something and at its absolute simplest you're right natalie it's about it's a story that for some reason we want to be told we want that knowledge to be passed on you know and, and if you think about our pre-written history how did we pass things on how did we pass on you know our, our, our knowledge and our understanding about the world around us the stories about our families and about our communities we did it through you know by, by oral transmission you know we told those stories and but the stories become lessons as well and so we have things like Aesop's fables, you know, thousands of years old, they've got some sort of a message. And even now, if you sit down and you write a story, it might be just because you want to tell that story, but you'll still think about how do I tell that story? Why do I choose that particular word and not that particular word? You know, so it's, it's kind of always in there. And then we could start getting into lots of kind of quite dull literary theory about, about reception of texts and about... Well, once I write a story as an author, does that story then belong to me? Because you as a reader come along and you imprint on it your expectations and your experiences. And maybe you think I mean something in particular and I didn't mean that, but you create your own meaning out of it. And that makes it personal. And then lots of ideas about is it still the same story or does it become a different story then? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I just couldn't take him saying everyone reads too much into it. I'm like, that was literally what I went to school for. So like... <laughs> if we don't read too much into it, I'm out of a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, please, please read into it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please, please. It's but understanding the history behind it is also like mm -hmm. very important to why yeah. that story, why it was told that way. So that's that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's not. It's about how different people write about the same thing as well and again that's back to about perspective and that talks to you know changes in society and changes in the way that we think yeah yeah that, that must be fascinating like you must have read books on certain topics of the same topic by different authors and been like what <laughs> that's like yeah. that's like a different thing altogether yeah yeah absolutely and certainly um when we start talking about my mystery topic yeah. Um, that's a topic where there's been lots of things written and there are lots of variations of stories and how do you separate out the myth from the reality and what's true and what's not true and oh God, that's exciting. all sorts of rabbit holes you start going down. I'm so excited. <laughs> but we can't get to that yet because I want to ask you where, from, where in Scotland you're from. Uh, so originally I'm from a town called Motherwell which is about 15 miles southeast of Glasgow in Lanarkshire. Um, although I left there, I always said when I go to, when I leave school and go to university, I'm leaving home. So I left there almost 25 years ago and I've never lived there since. I've kind of subsequently lived in lots of different little bits of Scotland. Um, so I've spent time in Dundee. Um, yes. Uh, yes, yes. And Dundee still, you know, Dundee still holds a very special place in my heart. That's where I met my husband. My in-laws are still there. So we're back there on a semi-regular basis. Um, good, I've lived good. in Livingston, which is in the central belt. It's a bit of a commuter town, um, but it was really convenient for work. We've lived up in the northeast, up in Aberdeenshire as well um, for a few years. And now we're back down 
um, similarly south of Glasgow, but on the southwest of Glasgow, in a little village now um, called Neilston, which is not very far outside Paisley. Is there any uh, is there any history that you've learned about either Motherwell or where you are now that you that or just like fun fun tidbits? Well, yeah, do you know I kind of picked something up that tied a little bit of stuff together. I think because I chose to leave Motherwell, I didn't feel hugely attached to it as a place, and I think part of that's because we never really did kind of local history stuff at school. Um, so I, I'm I'm kind of a little bit of a drifter, you know. It's like home is where the heart is, and 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 not the house. But the 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 little vill, kind of village just outside Motherwell where I grew up, um, it's a place called Newark Hill, and one of the kind of famous products products in inverted commas of Newark Hill is an actress called Elaine C. Smith, who most Scots will know as Mary Doll, the yep. wife of Rab C. Nesbitt. And I just learned, just as I was looking for things for coming on the podcast, thinking, right, okay, what can I say about Neilston? Um, you know, it's got a very high water table and it used to have a real industry around ble- bleaching linen, for example. So <laughs> like, okay, that's that's fine. But it turns out that Gregor Fisher, who played Rab C. Nesbitt, was raised by his aunt and uncle here in Neilston. So I've kind of brought both of those together. There you are. They could have crossed paths at some point with if they were on Who the knows? same journey that Moira was. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I was just, I'm just spitballing. <laughs> I love that. That's that's yeah. adorable. All right, let's hit pause for a quick second so that we can play everybody's favorite game. Talking Scots. Yes! It's, it's Talking Scots. <laughs> it is the game where we are joined by our fabulous producer who is on the line now. Kathleen, say hello. Hello, universe. Oh, we did it. Universe. That's, hey, that's I spoke. Brave. Yeah. It's scary. We're for joined me. by Kathleen because I need a partner in Americanness. Please don't say Americanness again. God damn I it. I don't know. Uh, I need a partner in crime, and the crime is being American, to <laughs> to learn some Scots from our wonderful guest. The way this works, you guys all know, but I'm going to explain it anyway. The way this works is our guest will bring us a word of Scots, and Kathleen and I will blindly guess what it means uh, without hearing it in a sentence or really having any context, at which point our lovely guest, Moira, will help hopefully put it in a sentence for us if we have still not guessed it right which we will not have at that point i can pretty much guarantee it um (laughs) and yeah and that's 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 how she goes so moira what is our word today okay your word today is scotty will you please spell that for us i believe it's spelled s-c-u-r-r-y and it like doesn't run real like fast, like scurry? scurry around like a squirrel? It's no, no, no. That would be too easy, Kathleen. That what would are you be, thinking? That would be far uh, too easy. You were there too. We both have, we're both hoping it was that easy. And, and, and I want to say, my American pals, I am at a loss. Oh, we have so it's stumped. it's not Dundonian is what we've We have stumped the atom. It's not Dundonian, no. No. Right, scary. I, is it, this isn't a legitimate guess. I'm playing for time for Kathleen. Is it a uh, shortening of the word scullery? <laughs> so yep. if you were in a rush, you wouldn't want to say that's my scullery maid. You would say that's my scurry maid. I just want to know if it's a verb, an oh, adjective, yes. or a noun. It's a noun. 
It's a it's nine. A nine. Curry. It's a nine. Is it some sort of like sleek it <laughs> curry? That's it's a little sketchy. Is it is it, is it sketchy? Is it sketchy curry. I mean, in that case, I'm gonna stay with my I'm gonna stay with my scullery maid connection and say that it's like a small kitchen. That's no. my guess. I'm wrong. Now all I can think of is a kitchen. You're welcome. A, okay, it's a scurry. I I, the I, countdown I, clock. Do, 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 I know. Do, well, do, I made a guess. Can we do it in a sentence now? <laughs> is yeah, it? Go now. Uh, go now. Do, do it in a sentence. That bloody scurry shot in my car. Oh, is it a bird? It's a specific kind of. Is it of a seagull? Is it a seagull? It is. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> Kathleen! What Kathleen got a point? Is it Clive? Is it, it's oh, we Clive. Is we Clive? We've got a seagull thread in, this ep- in, in these episodes. Oh, oh Kathleen, really? <laughs> I will, I will, I am glad to have, first of all, team tag, like tag team that, yeah, but I well, will, I will concede the point to you because <laughs> of a beautiful full circle moment. I'm also terrified of seagulls because they're always trying to kill me. <laughs> Um, no, so for those who aren't following our insane excitement about a seagull, when we had uh, Brian McCarty on, Brian McCarty had a seagull that was watching him the whole time he was recording, a, a quite large seagull, who uh, has since been named Clive by Adam, uh, or as Adam would call him, we Clive, we Clive, we Clive, we Clive, we Clive the Scotty. We oh. Clive the Scurry with we'll a runny bum. We Clive the Scurry. We Clive the Scurry. Oh my god, I love it. Yeah. Uh, so well, it's, it's it's maybe a little bit of a cheat. It's specifically a northeastern word, Scurry. So it's one that when I was teaching in Aberdeen, it's one the kids taught me out there. They would talk about the Scurries all the time. I was like, I've got no idea what you're speaking about. Some weird crossbreed of a squirrel. The Scurries. And a, and yeah. the scurries. Yeah. The scurries and the Doos. If you want oh, some my- more birds. Oh my God. I, you know what? Clive would have wanted it this way. Clive likes to insert himself into <laughs> conversations. So I can't wait till we have Clive to merch of some kind because we're going to have Clive the Ouija, Ouija boards, Clive, the unicorn, the national animal of Scotland. That's what's yeah. going to happen. The Ouija Ouija board, Moira. Come on. That's got, that's, that's, we, we pitched this. <laughs> that's to got everyone. mileage. <laughs> Someone's already stolen this. I, idea. no. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> Who's there? None of your fucking business. <laughs> Gonna <you> know that. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Moira, for bringing Clive back to us, even though you didn't even know. You didn't even know didn't what even joy know you're bringing us. Uh, He's channeling we'll, himself, obviously. <laughs> he just, he likes to insert himself into conversations. So in the meantime, though, back to the episode. <laughs> Well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say it. We've chatted. We've we've talked around it. I really want to know what topic you brought for us today. Go on. So we can well, just dig today, in now. So we just dig in. So today I'm going to bring to you the absolute icon that is Robert Burns. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, Robbie. 
Yes, Robbie, this is the other man in my life. This is the man that my husband has to share me with. Um, he's, Robbie would be I, happy with that. <laughs> well, well, we can dig down into that a little yeah, bit, Adam, you know. We can, back to myths and realities, you know. Um, this is, I had to really kind of skirt around the edges, you know, when um, Kathleen was asking for my little, my little blurb for, for my introduction and I had to be quite vague and be kind of Scottish literature. And I am based in Scottish literature, but within Scottish literature, we have the world's only centre for Robert Burns studies. And that's kind of where my work is, is predominantly based. And so that's wow. what I do and that's who I live with. Amazing. Oh my God. So you'll know so much about the man i think i know a fair bit i wouldn't ever say i know everything because no. then i'd be doing myself out of a job again um <laughs> but yeah there is there's so much to know you know he is we know he's you know he's this real icon he's known around the world you know when you ask people about scotland you can almost certainly guarantee one of the things that they'll flag will be rabbi or yeah. it will be one of his poems or one of his songs. You know, we all spend Hugmanay singing Old Lang Syne, for example. Yeah. yeah. But so he's just, he is, he's this world icon, but he's a real, he's also a real contradiction because for all that worldwide influence, he's never really been given his place within the poetic canon in the way that he maybe should have been. And there's lots and lots of stories that have kind of sprung up around him and lots of myths and lots of misinformation and bells and whistles get added on and um yeah so he's really fascinating really really interesting individual sometimes quite infuriating though right okay sounds like a well-rounded man then. yeah yes <laughs> it sounds like a man full stop yeah <laughs> yeah i can't deny <laughs> That I'm okay. I it's like I was trying to think off the top of the head, like off the top of my head, what all of our listeners would for sure know of of Robert yeah. Burns. And Old Lang Syne is the first thing that came up in my head. Um, I'm trying to think of what else are like everyone knows this, and then we can kind of like dig deeper. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you think of Robert Burns. Um, I mean, I think the perception, the perspective that Adam and I have might be slightly different because I think your experience will have been similar to mine in that every January in school they rolled out Rabbi. So, which, and the reason for that is perhaps one of the other, the other things that people will be familiar with. January the 25th, Burns Night, Burns Supper, addressing the haggis, drinking whiskey, having a rare old time. Yeah. Um, Rabbi, by and large... He wrote a lot of poems, he wrote a lot of songs, he liked the women, he liked to drink. That's kind of generally what people will know about him or think they know about him. Yeah. Um, Half of that is again, just like describing what people th think or assume of all of Scotland. <laughs> well, I think that there's a truth in that because there's so much of the, the, the kind of national identity that we market to the world is grounded 
in, in Burns, you know, you, the whole kind of romanticisation of the Highlands, for example, you know, the Roman and the Gloman and up the hills and glens and, you know, the, the kind of 12-point stag standing on the mountain, you know, in the, in the sunlight and stuff. Okay. So much of, <laughs> exactly, so much of that comes out of Burns's poetry. And so, you know, his, his um, you know, he, there's a point in his life where he goes on a tour of the Highlands because Burns comes from southwest Scotland down in Ayrshire. Um, and he is a lowlander and sometimes we get this homogenization of Scotland as a whole thing and, and people forget that actually there's quite diverse and distinct cultures within Scotland and the what we think of as being Scottish with the kilts and the tartans and all of that kind of stuff um, apart from that being a whole different podcast on its own about the the the, the marketization of the tartan and the idea of the clans um that was very much a highland thing and rabbi wasn't a highlander he was a lowlander so there's a point in his life where he goes on a tour of the highlands to go you know he he's published his first volume of poetry he's being acclaimed you know that people are labeling him caledonia's bard and he's like okay that's actually quite a serious responsibility and if they want me to write for the nation or represent the nation, I need to know what I'm talking about. So off he goes on a tour with his pal and up all around the Highlands. And um, we have, we still have his tour journal. It's really, it's it's, it's kind of quite dull reading, actually, the tour journal. That's another myth about Rabbi. Every single word that he wrote was not gold, okay? He <laughs> writes some real shit sometimes, honestly. Yeah. Total, yeah. I arrived in Inverness and had an early night. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? That is pretty much what it is, Adam. You know, it's like, oh, you know, we, we arrived in such and such and we had dinner with these people. And because he was, because he grew up in Ayrshire, he was the son of a tenant farmer. He was raised on the farm. So he saw things to an extent with a farmer's eyes. And so you kept him going around the highlands. And it's not about the really, you know, the glorious majesty of, of the Cairngorm Mountains or, or you know, the, 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 the lush pine forests or, or things. You know, we do get some of that, but it's also like, that looks like really quite good soil, you know? So he's thinking. He's thinking about what's the land worth. Yeah. So he's this kind of really interesting character, and you get this tour journal that's really, really dull. But then, out of that, you get poems like "My Heart Is in the Highlands" and "The Burks of Aberfeldy," which just really romanticise the Scottish Highlands. And in the 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 kind of couple of decades after his death and into the Victorian era, touring the Highlands and touring Scotland almost in the footsteps of Burns becomes a really fashionable thing to do because people want to go and see yeah. what it is that he's describing in his poems. Yeah. You know, so he, he kind of, in a way, gave birth to the Scottish tourist industry as we know it now. Well, like what you said earlier at the beginning about um, literature being written in the moment, surely then people read his poetry and be like, God, he, wrote, he wrote that when he was there. That That's like an absolute representation of his feelings of that part of scotland yep. so like yep. and, if, and if and it's so beautiful then i have to go and see it i have to go i have to go and see it and so we get um you know we get the likes of william wordsworth and his sister dorothy going on that same tour because they want to go and see what burns has said um but of course that in itself is a little bit of the kind of the myth and a little bit of the marketing of Burns because absolutely he went to see some of these things and yes, he might very well have written something overnight or very close to the visit, but some of them he didn't write until, you know, a good few months afterwards. So he's writing from memory and even the ones that were written at the time 
Um, he's going back later on and he's editing them. He likes sending things to friends and saying, oh, what did you think about this? And they'd come back with some suggestions and he'd do a wee bit more editing and then it would go out again. Um, you know, so, so people do have this idea of Burns being you know, divinely inspired by something and sitting down and scribbling it away. Sometimes that's the truth, but not always. Well, that's well, that's that's great because, like, right, you know, if, if I'm writing something or it, nah, I don't know if you do this, but like, if I'm writing something, I'm like, I've got a group of people who I'll send it to <laughs> and go, absolutely, go and have a wee read <laughs> and, yeah, and let me know, yeah. and then they'll they'll know they'll give me some notes, and I really respect their their you know their insight. Um, yeah, so that's absolutely. that's lovely to see. That's lovely to hear. Yeah, that. it's just so great that he had a writing group. <laughs> he had a wee writing group, a little cohort. Yeah, he, had, he did. He had very. He had specific people who he would send things to, and and one of those is a woman called Frances Dunlop, and she's probably my favourite person in the Burns story because she is so so underrepresented because yeah. she was a woman who was like. She was like 20 years older than him. And by the time they became acquainted, um, she she was 20 years older than him. She was widowed with, I think it was 13 or 14 children. She was his Whoa. social superior. You were never going to get any of the nice sexy stories that you get about Rabbi and the ladies with Frances Dunlop. But they, they so they first became acquainted. She, she was quite ill for a period in kind of 1784, 1785, 1786 because things had all gone a bit crap for her at home. Her husband had died, her son had financially mismanaged the lands, and that meant that they had to give up the family estate. And she was incredibly proud of this family estate because her family was descended from Robert the Bruce, and so it was the kind of historic Bruce lands. And she fell into this real depression. And as she was recovering, a friend sent her a copy of Burns's recently published volume poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect and she read it and she so enjoyed it and especially one poem called The Cotter's Saturday Night that she felt she had to write to him and say I really enjoyed this you know and you know I'm sure if it was nowadays she would have you know in, in she would have tweeted him or something like that but this is what <laughs> she did so she, she writes you know so she writes to him and says I really enjoyed it in fact you know what I enjoyed it so much that I want you to send me another six copies of your book so that I can give it to my friends. And this was a huge thing for Burns because to publish um, to publish poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, he had to publish it by subscription. He basically had to crowdfund it. Um, so he got people to sign up for buying copies before it even existed and the money that they paid then paid for the printer's time and the paper and the ink and these kind of things. So Francis gets herself extra copies of this but that first letter to Burns saying I really enjoyed your poem then became a really quite intimate correspondence between the two of them for for most of the rest of Burns's life which would have been another let me do my counting here 12 and a half years and in that the, the he's aware of her as a patron and a social superior and she could really help him and put him in contact with people and she absolutely does this but there's a real friendship grows between them and I think because Burns is also affected by a kind of a mood disorder you know what and this is kind of where my work really looks at is looking at his mental health and looking at his impact on his life and his work um he he gets really close to her because she understands what it feels like to be really severely depressed and she understands what it, you know, so there's a real empathy there. And 
her story, I think, in the story of Burns is just really underappreciated for that because he speaks to her in a way that he doesn't really speak to any of his other correspondents. He sends her, you know, copies of the poems and says, what do you think about this? She writes him some of her poems, which are very well intentioned and they've got lovely sentiments, but they're not going to be winning any prizes. Um, <laughs> but it's just, you know, it's yes. just a really, it's just a really, really lovely, you know, just a really lovely story. And then when you get towards the end of his life, part of the thing with Burns is obviously his kind of radical politics. You know, he's, the, the American Revolution has happened in his lifetime. Yep. And at the time, the French Revolution's going on, so there's a lot of yes. concern in Britain about, you know, the ruling classes are worried about, you know, the plebs rising up and overthrowing, you know, those who are in power. And Burns is very, you know, he's definitely very supportive of these and it's kind of an open secret, his support for the French revolutionaries. Two of Francis's daughters actually married French aristocratic refugees. And so... Yeah, and, and, and yet they still they managed to maintain this friendship kind of up until the winter, early in 1795, so about 18 months before Burns dies, and then they have some sort of a falling out, and we're not quite sure what caused the falling out, but our best guess is it's something to do with his expression of his politics and his celebration of King Louis and Marie Antoinette um, having a, a close encounter with Madame Guillotine. <laughs> you know, he's really quite harsh about this, you know, the fact that the French royal family, you know, it's great, the French royal family have had their heads chopped off because that's what they deserve, and we think that's maybe why they fell out. She stops writing to him and she stops replying to his letter, ghosts him. And, uh, yes, I know, and, and he starts writing to her more desperately, saying, you know, I've written to you two or three times and you've not replied to me, you know, I don't know what I've done wrong here, please tell me. And it's not until literally weeks before he dies she gets news that he's gravely gravely ill and he's not going to survive and she's still i think a little bit on her high horse at this point because rather than contact him she writes to gilbert burns's brother just to double check that this news is true and gilbert writes back and says yeah oh yes, just to check really that Ill. robert burns is it like trying to be like <laughs> i'm sick <laughs> i'm sick you have to talk sick. to me again <laughs> exactly that's it he's putting it all on just to get her back which to be honest sometimes she can be a little bit uh, she would actually quite like that you know um <laughs> but no gilbert writes back to her and says no it, it really is that serious and he burns writes to her again one last time and we've still got that letter and it's a beautiful letter where he describes his relationship with her as the friendship of my soul and we know that she replied but that letter's been lost, so we don't ever know what the last thing she said oh. to him was. But it's lovely to know that in some way before he passed, they were reconciled because it was such an important friendship for him. How do we know that she replied? I just was like, I thought you were going to say that she left him on red and I was going to be so... <laughs> You'd be like, what? Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Well, this is one of... So part, part, part of our work in Glasgow at the moment is doing a big brand new um, edition of the complete works of Burns and so we've got the first four volumes out there already which cover his his kind of commonplace books his kind of scrapbooks with his tour journals and then two that cover a lot of his songs um, that he did with two Edinburgh publishers called James Johnson and George Thompson 
the next set of volumes are going to be working on the correspondence. And as we're working through all of this, we're working through and finding these references to letters. It might be that someone's written a list of letters that they've seen at some point, but those letters themselves have then gone missing. So we've got eyewitness accounts of letters existing okay. that have then been lost. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that this last letter from Francis did exist at some point, partly because we know that she helped James Curry write the first official biography of Burns. Um, James Curry took this biography on to help raise money to support Burns's wife and his family after after his death. And but we think that some of the letters, well, some of the letters were handed over to Curry and he transcribed them into his volume so that people could see what a beautiful letter writer Burns was, because some of his letters are fantastic. I think that there's other ones that because they were too personal, they never made it in there. They were never handed over, but we know that they did exist. Right. Okay. I honestly, during that whole story about Francis Dunlop, I heard like 13 things that I was like, I want to know more about that. No, more about that. I want to know more about that. I, want, like, <laughs> I know. I understand why this is your entire job now. Oh my God. <laughs> like I understand how deep this well is just from like, yeah, a five-minute story, little flags going off in my head. It's amazing. It's amazing. So it's 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 like you know what we had, Adam. You know, every January they would roll out Burns, and you'd have to learn a poem or whatever. Yeah. You know, if if I think you know, we're kind of of a similar age, so if if you did higher English, we had set texts on the higher English curriculum at the time. So the higher's are are the kind of national qualifications in Scotland, and I did Burns as my set texts there. And I then never touched Burns again until I came back really to do my PhD. Um, I, I taught him a little bit when I was a high school teacher, but I never really touched him. And likewise, I mean, up until 2014, when I started, when I started my, my research, I had no idea about all of this stuff. And it's like, yeah. oh my God, this yeah. guy is absolutely fascinating. And there's so much stuff that just doesn't ever make it out there because we love Rabbi liked to drink, Rabbi liked the women, here's to a mouse, here's to a louse, here's old Lang Syne, and, and maybe we'll chuck in a bit of Tamish Antler as well. And, yeah. and that's it. And we get this kind of greatest hits version of Burns. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant way of summing it up. It is a greatest hits. Mm -hmm. And it's like um, you collating all that together. Because when people, if people was, to, if someone suggested to me, um, go and look up, uh, up some Burns stuff, I mm -hmm. immediately think, God, that's like everywhere. Like that's gonna, I'm just gonna take years to like, you know, look into all that. So collating it all together into what a couple of volumes is it, or a three? I mean, what are we going well, to do? Uh, I mean, the whole thing. I mean, it's a massive project. Yeah. Um, we're we're now in the whole thing is going to run to about ten volumes in total. But that'd be amazing to have, though, right? Oh, it'd be amazing to have. Absolutely amazing to have. And, and you know, but there's a lot of really good, um, you know, kind of bookshelf collections of Burns's poetry there as well. There's a lot of great resources on the web. There's a really fantastic website that I, I go back to. It's robertburns.org. And it has um, kind of all of his poems on there. And it has a, an encyclopedia that will tell you about all of the, you know, people who were in his life in some place or places that were important in his life. Um, and you can just sit and dip in and out of that and, and, you know, pick up little bits and pieces here and there. Yeah. And so it's interesting because in America, like, literally, we wouldn't study him at all. It would just be, we're too busy. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder 
I wonder if the only reason I know as many different, even American poets that that I know, if I only know them because I actually have an English degree mm -hmm. and I like took poetry classes, uh, because I was gonna be like, oh yeah, well, could we of course we couldn't, we didn't have time, we didn't have time for Robbie Burns. We were too busy just always obsessing about Robert Frost. We were too busy just <laughs> sitting around and just, it was all Wadsworth, Frost, and then like, here's here's some Shakespeare. Here's, if you're lucky, you know who Marlowe and Moliere are. That might only be because <laughs> I am a, a theater major as well. And it's just like, yeah. Old Lang Syne yeah. is by this guy, Robert Burns. Okay, moving yeah. on. And yet Burns has got a massive following in, in North America massive following in north yeah. america because especially if you go to the areas where there are large scottish descended migrant populations so the carolinas for example ma you know lots of really active you know burns clubs there um, in fact atlanta in georgia has a replica of robert burns birthplace cottage that's so cool that you, you that is, it's owned by it's owned by the burns club of atlanta and the way that came about it's, it sits on land, as I understand it, it sits on land that was purchased by the Coca-Cola company because the guy who was in charge of the company at the time was a massive Burns fan and he bought the land and they've built a replica of the cottage there and the Atlanta Burns Club hold their meetings in this cottage. You know, so there's a, there, there's this massive, you know, massive falling uh, across uh, the USA, Canada as well. You know, we've got a lot of really active Burns clubs there. Outside of Scotland, the biggest repository of Burns-related material sits in the, the special collections in the library at the University of South Carolina. So he's definitely oh, out there. That is yeah, amazing. it's just he's not mainstream curriculum. He's not mainstream. No, and, and this is something that we, you know, we're kind of working to change as well, because when you think Burns is absolutely what we call a romantic poet, you know, he does all the stuff about nature. He does all the stuff about social justice. He does all the things yeah. about... Um, you know, kind of change and about, you know, speaking truth to power. But he's not, you know, we kind of had the critics in the the, the, the late 19th century and certainly into the, the early 20th century, you know, we came out with this idea of the romantic big six, you know, so, so Blake and Byron, Keats, Shelley, Wordsworth and Coleridge, and everything else was peripheral and not really worth studying and burns gets shoved aside he gets classed as a regional vernacular poet because he's not writing in standard english all the time he writes in scots yeah. and yet you've got wordsworth and you've got coleridge and you've got byron and you've got keats all of them talking about how influential burns was on them yeah you know so he, he's kind of been lost in that mix yeah i, I was i was gonna say actually um and this might be a very layman's kind of watered down um approach to uh, to what I'm about to say, but I, when we got taught Scots at drama school, we had to mm -hmm. you know we had to actually like learn the traditional Scots language, like mm -hmm. you know how it's a it's a it's a mishmash, not a mishmash, but it's like a collaboration of like four different languages all pieced together sort yeah. of thing, and and it was deemed at some point in history as a heightened language, like royal mm -hmm. royalty would speak in Scots and then all yeah. of a sudden it, it's like what you said it got pushed to the side in the periphery yep. and it was deemed like yep. lesser almost and I was going to yeah. ask do you think that's why maybe Burns has has I maybe mean, people might go oh yeah it's good but I mean it's not like Shakespeare is it 
Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you get people yeah. with that, that attitude. That kind of attitude, absolutely. I think, so you're absolutely right, Adam. You know, if you go back to, you know, 15th and 16th century Scotland, where at this point in time, Scotland is still a nation in its own right. It still mm-hmm. has its own king. It still has its own parliament based in Edinburgh. Scots is the language that's being spoken. It's the language of power. It's the language of authority. You know, we've got a lot of fantastic Scots language literature from the time and then what we get is in 1603 elizabeth the first dies james the sixth is then crowned james the first of england and the royal court moves down south to london and so english starts taking over as the 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 language of the language of power we have the act of union in 1707 we get really interesting things happening in the 18th century because 1707 we have the act of union where you know scotland joins england and and we form great britain um we have through that age that 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 century also what we now call the age of enlightenment you know yeah. so really big important thinkers and philosophers and your adam smiths and your david humes are all coming out and one of the big ideas out of enlightenment is this idea of improvement. But by improvement, what they mean is anglicisation. Yeah. And so these big Scottish thinkers are deliberately trying to eradicate the Scotticism from the writing. They're trying to write in a more standard English. Um, but then what you also get in the 18th century is you get people like Alan Ramsey, who's a, a, a publisher in Edinburgh, Robert Ferguson, an Edinburgh poet, and then Robert Burns coming up after that saying, hold on a minute here, we've yeah. got a language that we should be proud of. And that's against the backdrop, remember, of in the first half of the 18th century, we've had the Jacobite uprising. So all those questions about Scottish nationhood's happening yeah. as well. You yeah, know, that, so it's like, uh, yes, let's get the Scots out there. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually going to say, I was going to ask, because like, I, I read this book about the 1820 uprising um, mm-hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember the the radical uprising in eighteen twenty or something. Yes, and, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I've, that's an, that's a phenomenal book. Like you read that book and you're like, there's about fifteen films in this, so you can write screenplays. Oh yeah, for, yeah, about, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? yeah. It's like amazing. And um, I'm sure, I'm sure there was a bit in that, whether it's that book or another book that I've read, that suggested that that Robbie Burns was secretly, like you know feeding ammo and weapons to France. Would right, that, okay, and so and is, got, is that a... We've got, I, th- I think we've got two dates mixed up there. So there was a radical uprising of, the, of 1820 and Burns is influential in that his poems, uh, you yes. know, some of his poems, the idea of a man's a man for all that. Yeah. And Scots way was, um, you know, was important. But yeah, we've got the French Revolution happening. And so there is this famous story about Burns. Burns for a period worked off, he was working along the Ayrshire coast and effectively for the tax office really and there was a, a ship, I can't remember if the ship ran aground or what quite what happened with it but there was a ship and on the ship there were some cannon and the story goes that Burns managed to get the cannon off the ship, buy the cannon off the ship and then pay for them to be shipped all the way from Ayrshire all right down through England and over to France to help the revolutionaries, which is a great story because it really buys into that idea of Burns as the the, the, the radical, yeah. and you know him being you know, all for the people. But that's one of those stories where you've got to separate out the myth and the reality because for okay. Burns to actually be able to do that, there's no documentary evidence of it, and it, 
you know, there's no receipts for things. There's no receipts for kind of export out of Dover. What it actually would have cost him to buy those cannon, to get them <laughs> shipped and get them across, it'd have been as well sending them a cheque. Um, and this is not a guy who, by any stretch of the imagination, was making a massive amount of money to yeah, be able like, to afford a, to do that in the first place. He's a poet. <laughs> yeah. exactly. He's crowdfunding his it. own poems. Yeah. He's crowdfunding his own poems. You know, he he's... He's supposed to be farming the, 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 the land of the farm that he's renting, although his brother Gilbert is kind of doing, you know, most of that. Um, he gets a job as an excise man, but that's paying, his salary was like £50 a year, you know. I mean, yeah. it, it, Wait, it, it was an not a massive... Wait, what's an excise man? He's a tax man, basically. Oh, so his, right. job, his, his job was to kind of like go around, you know, mainly was to kind of go around, you know, the, the pubs and the stills and things and where they were brewing alcohol or, you know, distilling whiskey or whatever and seeing how much have you made, working out how much tax they owed the government and him collecting that. You know, which, you know, this is kind of something that's kind of interesting for a man who was supposedly, of, you know, who, who was of such radical politics, but at the same time, he's essentially a government employee, you know, so this is where he comes into being a kind of complex and contradictory man, you know, and, and but always in touch with the people. There's a great story about him, as, you know, when him being i can't remember which town he was in but he was going round doing he was going doing his rounds and he'd gone into some place and there was an illicit still going Naughty. and apart and apparently he'll you know he kind of loudly announces something to the effect of the next time i'm in here i'll be checking for the still and for the tax take and off he goes again. And so they've got time to kind of clear everything away and they don't get in trouble because, of course, <laughs> if they were caught with the illicit still, it's going to then be, you know, criminal charges and things. Mm-hmm. So he, on one hand, he's working for the government, but on the other hand, he's remembering where he comes from. You know, he, yeah. he knows what it's like to be living hand to mouth and worrying about where the next meal's coming from. Yeah, this the the tax collecting feels very much just like a, a job. Like, yeah. it's not it's not who he is and he doesn't want to be doing it. <laughs> And he doesn't care if he does it particularly well. Well, do you know, it's funny. We have reports from his supervisors on the excise saying that he was very conscientious about it. And we've still got some of his records where he's keeping his accounts. And he does seem to have been, because it was a job, but it meant it was a regular income and it kept a roof over his head and food on the table for his quite large family by that point. But the other thing it gave him, so he he had responsibility for... um, what was about a, a ride of about 200 miles and so he would ride these 200 miles checking all the places they had to check but what that also did was give him access to the small towns and the small villages where he could you know spend the night in the pub with the local inn or whatever and listen to the local songs and he would collect the songs and and so this is back to the idea of burns on tour and burns being caledonia's bard because he was acutely aware of the fact that because of things like the Highland Clearances following the uprisings, communities and ways of life were being lost and, you know, people were sailing off to the Americas to, to try and make a better life. They were moving into the towns and cities because there was more work because of industrialization. And he realised that these songs and these tunes were going to be lost. And so one of the tasks he set himself was to gather and collect these. And the exercise was great for that for him because he got to go around and see all these people and collect all these things. And that's where he gets involved with the publishers that I mentioned, James Johnson and George Thompson. He's collecting the songs for them and they're then publishing them in, in, in big volumes. And a lot of the songs, there's a lot of songs from that period that if it wasn't for Burns, would probably have been lost. 
but because he collected them and also probably because they had his name attached to them they've survived to the modern day that's excellent so mid mid to late 18th century he's born he's the son of a farmer was it unusual for him to be educated or was it unusual for him to know how to to write in general let alone pursue it as the path yeah, for his life it, w- it would have been it would have been so uh, burns's father william was originally from the northeast of scotland and his employer at the time kind of had some jacobite links and william thought i'm going to get out of here before i get into any trouble and so he makes his way south he comes via edinburgh and over to ayrshire um but he something that's really really important to william for his children is education now scotland because of kind of earlier kind of legal moves had better literacy than you would have seen south of the border in england a lot of that was mediated through the church but well, it didn't become would... Great Britain until Scotland was involved. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Exactly. And they're no. still playing catch up. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, so there was, you would have a certain degree of literacy because you remember that at the time we're talking about Scotland being a Protestant country. And so we're thinking about the Bible being in English. And so you being able to read your own Bible, you know, that's kind of why you were taught to read. But of course, once you teach somebody to read the Bible, they can read anything else they like. So for William Burns, education for his children was really important. So there was a period where William, uh, sorry, Robert and his son, his brother Gilbert, were sent to school in Ayr, and he did, um, you know, he did some maths and he did rhetoric and he did Latin. The school closed, and then what happened? This is another crowdfunding story. There seems to be a lot of this going on. <laughs> is that William and four or five of the other farmers in the area all kind of clubbed in together to pay for a tutor, a guy called John Murdoch, and he came and he taught the sons of the farmers, and he kind of, kind of couch surfed around the farmers and stayed with them, you know, for two or three weeks at a time and moved around. So when Burns's poems are published in 1786, there's a review published of them by Henry Mackenzie, who's a really renowned Scottish author at the time, writes um, a novel called The Man of Feeling, which Burns says is one of his favourite novels. And in that review, he describes Burns as the heaven-taught ploughman. And that is an idea, that's a label that's really, really stuck with Burns. But it's a little bit classist. It's this, how could this guy, that tenant son of the farmer, possibly write this calibre of material if this was anything other than God-given talent and inspiration? But actually, Burns is really quite well-educated. You know, he's read a lot of stuff. He's reading a lot of Shakespeare. The 18th century, the the mid-18th century also saw the invention of the library, you know, the idea of being able to borrow books to read and hand them back rather than... Than, than buying them because books were expensive. So his father was accessing books through the library here. So he was reading all sorts of stuff. And that love of learning sticks with Burns right through his life. So he's also instrumental in setting up a library. And we see him writing to the bookseller in Edinburgh saying, send me copies of this and copies of that. And that's interesting, you know, the kind of stuff that they were reading there. Um, so he is really very, you know, really very well educated. A lot of his poems and his letters, you see him referencing other um, well-known poetry at the time you see him referencing Shakespeare you see him referencing some of those great philosophers you know Smith and Hume and whatnot this is not a guy who's scraping about in the mud and suddenly goes I'm gonna write about a mouse <laughs> you know this is a guy this is a guy who's really 
really switched on and he's yeah. pulling all of this stuff together. So yeah. even when he's even when he's doing his route uh, as an excise man, probably a lot of the people who he's hearing sing these songs yeah. can, could yeah. could write them down themselves because it's not horribly uncommon. They just why would they? They're just singing well, at their well, pub. It's the, it's then about it's then about you know it wouldn't have been massively expensive, but it's about the cost of paper, the cost of ink, you know, finding the time to do it. You know, if you he's got in, all the connections and everything lined he's up. He's got all so. the connections. This is it. He, okay. So it wasn't like he can do all that. it wasn't like these songs haven't been written down because it's very uncommon in these small towns for people to be able to write. It's just no, no, who has the time absolutely. and the means. And I think yeah, I think there's an element as well of value in them because it you know people come along and they hear that and you know oh it's a guy singing in the pub in the corner what's that worth to anybody you know it took you know burns coming along and saying it's worth something because it's our history you know it's like the it's conversation us. we're having at yeah. the start it's us it's who we are it's how we got to where we are yeah we can't dilute that and diminish that that's really really important culturally yes we need to, we need to preserve it absolutely absolutely and that's again something that really comes from burns's younger days so although he's got his father who's really you know proper education you need to read and write and, and and do all of these things and that's how you're going to get a job that's going to get you out of the life of a tenant farmer burns also writes about you know his mother's beautiful singing voice and about hearing you know hearing these songs at his mother's knee there was an old I think it was an old auntie or a cousin of his mother who lived with him when he was very young and she would tell tell him all the stories of you know the beasties and the bogles and the witches and the warlocks you know so then the things you see coming out in in, in tam O'Shanter and things you know yeah. this is stuff that he's been hearing you know since he was you know kind of a tiny little boy you know it, 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 he's grown up with it all it's all as much a part of him as the learning and, and everything else yeah like tam O'Shanter is a long poem isn't it it is a long poem, 320, certainly over 300. Uh-huh. And it's Burns's longest one. But it's a great, this brings us back to what we were talking about earlier, Natalie, about, you know, how do you read a text? Because you can sit and you can just read it as a story. You know, it's this great story about the guy goes to the pub, gets drink, gets drunk, has a ride home, sees some pretty lassies, gets himself in bother. You can have a bit of a laugh about it. But it's also you can also then take it and really kind of drill down into it and and start thinking about those layers and take more out of it you know so there's bits the poem's mostly written in scots uh-huh. but then the second verse burns switches to very standard english and you see him doing this in his other works he'll have poems in scots but when he gets to the serious bit he switches to english you get into you get to the story it's all this it's all in scots all in scots and then you get to the, the he gets to the serious bit he's saying you know what right everybody needs to listen to this and this is a bit that everybody needs to know about it doesn't matter if you don't know what's happening up till now you need to know this bit and he switches to standard english and then you get those really famous lines about but pleasures are like poppies spread you seize the flower its bloom is shed or like the snow falls in the river a moment white then melts forever so, you know, so he's getting into this really quite deep, serious stuff about the transience of life and the transience of happiness. You know, nothing, nothing is forever. Everything's always going to change. And so you can do that, you know, you can do this right through kind of time, you know, pull different bits out. And there's a really, I've got a really interest in reading on it. As I've mentioned before, my work really looks at Burns and his mental health. And through his life, 
Um, he writes about being affected by, by what at the time and what he calls melancholy or if it's really serious hypochondria and that's not like hypochondria as we understand it you know he's not making it up it, it, it's hypochondria was like a kind of severe depression with kind of physical symptoms so he would talk about having an upset stomach and headaches and he would also have periods where he was really kind of high and, and not not quite manic um, you know what the, the clinicians call hypomanic you know but still a really high mood and so what I did with my research was really go through all of his letters and kind of look at all of these different signs and look at it against them, you know, the kind of clinical criteria. And at the end of it, kind of coming out, people have said for a long time, oh, we think Burns had depression. And I've come out at the end of it and said, well, it might have been more like a bipolar disorder. And yeah. so there's then a way of reading Tamashanta where you can actually read it as, this is Burns writing about his experience with his moods. So if you think about... It opens up kind of nice and warm and happy and he's had a few drinks and he's feeling great, you know, and, and Tam's talking about feeling invincible, you know. And that's that kind of bravado that you get when you're in that high, but then he's got to go out into the dark of the storm. And the storm is an image that comes up in other poems when Burn, that Burns is writing around times when he's depressed, you know. So yeah. he goes out in the dark of the storm and it's really scary. But he sees the light of the kirk, you know, that's the light of him kind of coming coming out of out of that depression and, and it's really ramping up and you're seeing the witches dancing and whirling and burling in the temple of the poem all really picks up and then of course he yells out the, 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 the immortal line, Well done, Cutty Sark! And all hell breaks loose, you know, so this is the, the kind of, again, when, you know, when, when Burns is, is kind of approaching that mania that he um, isn't, necessarily making the best decisions in life you know and he gets himself yeah. into a wee bit of bother but of course sometimes those decisions have consequences and for tam it's about getting chased by the chased by the witches and and then it's only by the mayor meg getting him over the bridge that he's saved but of course meg loses her tail you know so, so there's loads and loads of ways that you could read tam so yeah you can read it as this poem that is burns's journey through his own mind and through his disordered moods or you can read it as that, just a really fun story, or you could read it as a warning against the drink and a warning against, you know, playing around with the young ladies. Or, you know, these are the kind of things that people were saying about Burns in his lifetime anyway. So maybe it's just him kind of, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, saying to them, I don't care what you're saying, guys, I'm just going to make fun out of this and, yeah. and um, you know, and just enjoy it. And, and it's like what you were saying earlier on, it's like the interpretation of certain works. I mean, arguably, it, it could mean all those things, right? It could mean all of those things, it could mean none of those things, it can mean whatever you want it to mean, you know, you take from it, you know, wh whatever you want. One of the kind of things with, with Tamashanter is that is it's it's kind of like the longest footnote in history. So it comes, yeah, it, you know, it comes about, there's this guy called Francis Grose who had already published a book called The Antiquaries of England about lots of famous sites in England and information about them. And he's going to do one for Scotland. And Burns meets him and he says to him, and, and Burns says to him, will you put Alloway Kirk in for me? Because that's where my father's buried. And Gross says, well, I will, but you need to write me something for it, because otherwise it's not really anything. And so that's what Burns does. He goes off and he writes Tamashanter. And Tamashanter goes into that book as a footnote. And so it's just a great big long footnote. Is, is This is where the, the, the poem comes from. So then you're reading the poem. It's got you know, these really quite serious messages, quite philosophical thoughts, but it's mixed in with the, the kind of folklore and the superstition of Scotland. And so, well, then you read that, is that poem just really Burns' tribute to his parents and that mix of what they gave him when he was yeah. growing up? 
Yeah, yeah that's it. That's lovely. That's I would. I don't know. I would. I want to interpret it all the ways. Yeah, that's it. One for every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, can can I just ask? Just stop briefly. I just need to ask because you know it, it. It's like a an itch I need to scratch. Nat, how is the Scottish accent coming along? Oh well, we'll find out very shortly. I can't uh, wait, <laughs> Kathleen. Please come to your mic and tell us what my line is. You know, you're getting less and less enthusiastic about these as the episodes go on. I'm not. I'm not. I'm buzzing. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Adam is lit the fuck up right now. <laughs> this week, I decided to stick with a literary theme since I knew who, what, her, uh, what Moira's topic was going to be. Um, this week is coming from the 2005 film Pride and Prejudice, or as I like to call it, Pride and Prejudice Light, or the non-Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. And the quote, <laughs> and the quote is, first, I must tell you, I've been the most unmitigated and comprehensive ass. Jesus Christ. Which sounds great when I say it. I just want to say Nah, good luck. On you go, pal. Mm. Another line that is originally delivered in a different dialect. I'm terribly, terribly bored. <laughs> it's not going to be posh anymore. <laughs> First, I must tell you, I've been the most unmitigated and comprehensive arse. That was actually okay. And it only sort of slipped into Irish. Yeah, it sort of slipped into Irish. But, you know, it pains me to kind of say, you know, it was decent. <laughs> I will, that is a check that I will cash. I think you get extra bonus points, Natalie, for remembering to change it to arse. Yes. That's exactly, that's, Moira, that's what I was going to say. You, you, yep. you said arse. I, you know what I did? I, I focused on saying first fairly accurately and then sticking the landing with ours. Because no one remembers the middle. No, Always... psychologically we forget the middle, yeah. Mm -hmm. You forget <laughs> that unmitigated was fully Irish. I, I kind of think just flat out American. <laughs> no, because I flattened my eyes a little. Just, okay. just general American, right? Tell yeah, yeah. General American. Just yes. general. Just the important thing, I think, is that I stuck the landing with ours, which... Well, let's, let's just finish this little bit with Moira's take. Mm. <laughs> what do you think, Moira? You're, you're assuming that I, re I remember what the sentence was. Um, yeah, no, 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 it's... I'd go with dropping your T's more, Natalie. Get the gutter of tea in there. I need to yeah. stop using the way that Adam speaks to us as <laughs> yeah, a know. reference because he hits his T's so hard. He dumbs it down. He needs somebody who's not had dramatic training. That's what yeah. you need. See, I, Somebody's got a bottle of butter. Butter. I, I, when I'm at home, when I'm in Dundee, it's butter. Uh, right? But That's you've what, done butter. that before. You've said water before as well. What, and water. Water. <laughs> How would unmitigated butter. be... Wait, somebody say... Somebody with an actual unmitigated, right? Unmitigated. No. Unmitigated. Okay. Yeah, I hit so, those T's too hard. Unmitigated. I hit unmitigated. those T's too hard, and I landed yeah. on my arse. Hey, <laughs> skadoosh! Back to the show.
fascinating though all this. I mean, obviously, uh, Robbie Burns is, a, is an incredibly complicated character, mm-hmm. and 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 you're right. We get we get the the greatest hits, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. This, and we get we get the cherry picked parts of his personality. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I never, I never even knew you had a brother called Gilbert, for instance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like Gilbert Burns, what was he doing? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Um, Picking up the slack for Robbie. Being a better farmer than his big brother. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yep. But uh, Moira, so we've, uh, you know, we've got lots of things that we we think we know about him. Mm-hmm. But do you have any? Uh, I, I, I assume that you you do. Do you have things that you've read or you know about Robbie Burns that we just won't know, and we'd be like, what? Do you know, that's really hard to kind of separate out now because I'm so immersed in him. Of course, you'll you know, know everything. <laughs> but, well, not quite everything. I need to leave myself something to do next week. I mean, one, one of the big misconceptions, for example, is that people today still think, there's, you know, people still think Burns drank himself into an early grave. There's this yeah. association. You know, and, you know, he does write, you know, poems like on Scotch drink and things. And he does write, you know, he does write about whiskey and whatnot. But you don't, when you go through his correspondence, you know, you don't really see him talking about drinking that often. And certainly he wouldn't be holding down a job with the government excise where he's got to ride 200 miles over a week if he's blind drunk all the time, you know. But this comes out of uh, James Curry, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote that first official biography. James Curry was a, a doctor in Liverpool. He was Scottish, but he was a doctor um, down in Liverpool. But he was he was quite kind of into the te- what we would now call the temperance movement. You know that kind of idea of abstaining completely from alcohol. And so, what happened with his biography biography of Burns is it became a little bit of a warning of if you drink too much, especially mm. especially if you're one of these creative types, then this is what happens. And Burns becomes this cautionary tale, you know. So, imagine so and 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 that that depiction there of Burns as the alcoholic has really persisted, you know, to now two hundred odd years down the line. But as I say, you know, if you kind of go through stuff, um, there's no evidence that he was drinking any more than anybody else at the time. Also, here's that warning can go the opposite direction. Is that I'm sure that for every person who is like oh, if I drink too much, it'll take me to an early grave like Robert Burns. There's also people being like, if I drink more, I can be as prolific a poet as Robbie Burns. Like, it's a Hemingway effect. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's exactly it. You can, go, you can go either way with it, you know? And it, it's... But yeah, I mean, there are certainly episodes where he does go too far. There's one of his letters that recounts when he's on one of his little Highland tours with friends. Um, and they're in the pub are in and they've had a fair few drinks and they meet a Highlander on a horse and decide they're going to have a horse race with this Highlander. And so here's a drunk Robbie Burns and here's some Highlander having a, a race down this lane someplace in the Highland countryside and he falls off his horse and ends up in a ditch, you know. So he could take it too far <laughs> sometimes. But by and large... You've taken was, that too far. <laughs> yes. By and large, he's, he's better behaved than he's often made out to be when it comes to the yeah. drink. Yeah, and and, and we, we know all about, was he as a prolific lover as we know? And, and, well, but we, I mean, did he have a... Are we just playing Robbie Burns myth-busting now? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a whole podcast on its own, isn't it? It's a whole series. Yeah. yeah. Myth-busted. <laughs> he, Burns, 
Burns loved women. Burns loved women in all the ways and all of the definitions of love. He loved women in the, you know, he, he respected them and he valued them as people and as individuals. And I've spoken about Francis Dunlop. And yeah, Francis, were, yeah, of course. You know, you know so Francis Dunlop, there was an, a, a, another woman who lived quite near Ellisland Farm where he lived. Uh, that was his first marital home. Women who lived quite nearby called Maria Riddle, who, again, of a similar age, but an entirely platonic relationship built on mutual respect for each other's intellect and, and kind of cultural knowledge. So he, you know, he loved women and respected them in that way. But Burns also loved being in love. I think, I think he, he loved that kind of, you know, the thrill of the, the, the first flushes. Um, but he was also, he was a farmer's boy, you know, he was brought up with the birds and the bees and, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, nature and sex and things goes on all round about you. And, and for as much, you know, for as much as the, the church were saying, no, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to make you sit in the cutting stool for three Sundays in a row for fornicating. As far, you know, Burns was like, do you know what? It's a God given pleasure and I'm going to enjoy it. And, yeah. but to give him his credit, he took responsibility for his actions, you know? So people talk about, oh, Robert Burns, you know, he had so many children and, he definitely had 12, and there's a 13th who's a little bit questionable. Nine of those were with Jean Armour, who would become his wife. The first two pregnancies were both twin pregnancies, but the second set of twins, unfortunately, died um, very shortly after they were born. Um, and then, you know, they went on to have another kind of five children after they were married. There's then three other children who were born. The, his oldest daughter, Bess, was her mother was Elizabeth Payton, who was like Burns's mother's servant in the house at the time. You know, so this was way before he was married and everything. But when Elizabeth fell pregnant, Burns and his mother took the baby into the family and raised it. And then we see that similarly afterwards with Anna Park, who was a barmaid at one of the, the pubs in Dumfries, the Globe Inn, that he liked to frequent. Um... Jean Armour, his wife, by that point, took the baby in and raised it in their home. He tried to take on the child that he had um, with Jenny Clough, but Jenny refused to give the child up. So, but again, he sent her money, you know, and, and, and tried to look after it as far as he was allowed to. But Jenny was a bit like, I don't really want anything to do with you, you know. So he loved the women and we're living in the 18th century contraception was not a thing you know so that that's why we have so many children you know i suspect it wouldn't have happened nowadays yeah. but he was also like i'm taking responsibility for that you know so so I, I had as much a part to play in that baby being born as she did and so i've got to you know stand up and do my duty as well well that's i mean I, you know what I, as, as an aside anyone who i've got two kids <laughs> I mean, somebody has 13 kids, I think they deserve some kind of, like, hug. <laughs> Just on a daily basis. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, here's some money. <laughs> yeah. A hug and maybe a drink. Yeah. Maybe he deserves a, a drink. A drink, yes. Well, maybe a knighthood if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you thought like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, so people, I mean, people make this great big thing about, you know, how many kids that Burns had. But again, you know, remembering the time in history that we're talking about, infant and childhood mortality was quite high. So actually course, only yeah. only three of his children make it into adulthood. And I, if you look now, if you kind of look at the genealogical charts throughout the modern day, actually most of the people alive now who will claim descendants from Burns actually come off the illegitimate children rather than his legitimate children with his wife. 
Wow. Sorry, how many did you say made it to adulthood? Three. Oh God, that's devastating. Mm-hmm. So you know we've got so we've got that you know that that twin birth that I mentioned where they they died, you know within weeks. His final son Maxwell actually was born the day that Burns was buried. You know, so Jean was really heavily pregnant when Burns was, um, you know, terminally ill and he was born on the day that his father was buried. He only lived, if I remember, till about three or four years old. Some of them kind of made it into God, their that's... teenage years, you know, so it's, but it's again, it's a marker of the times, you know, it's a marker of the times yeah. that we're living in. The thing is, though, I think when I was growing up, we'd like, you know, something on TV, hug my name, and mm-hmm. there'd be an actor on you know, reciting one of his beautiful poems or whatever. And, uh, and my mum would always just kind of make a flip. He was a womanizer. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, but like, that guy, you know, I mean, that's a nice poem in that, but he was a womanizer. But he was a womanizer, I know. And, and you're just like, you, it's like we, we because with these opinions that we hold mm-hmm. towards him, you know, it's like that somehow taints the work that we're listening to. Yeah. When it, you know, it should never ever do that. And, ov- and obviously, there has been some kind of, dare I say, propaganda against them, where they've picked certain aspects of his life and his personality, and that's what gets pushed, you know? Absolutely. To kind of Absolutely. diminish his work almost. Because they say, you know, like the, there's the, you know, the, 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 during the independence referendum in 2014, there was that. Wasn't there? There was that argument about whether Burns would be pro-union, would you, or wouldn't he? pro-independence, yeah. Yeah. because he sat on that fence very, very well. Because obviously he's got a he's got a job with the government, yeah. But then he's also writing poems on the as side. Well. That's it. And you, you know, you can go to your, you know, you can go to your volume of Burns's poems and songs, and you can find poems, you know, where very much you can say, oh, here he is supporting, um, you know, supporting the monarchy and supporting the status quo, and then you, you know, you can go half a dozen pages down, and here's one talking about, you know, overthrow everything and let's be a republic. You know, he, he, yeah. he's, he, he's a there's a piece of writing that I can't remember who it was but it was when various bits of reading that I was doing and somebody describes him as a chameleon and I think that's a fantastic description because he can write in so many different ways and it's not just about can he write you know can he write kind of what we'd now call pro or anti-independence but this is also you know he writes in his own voice so if you take to a mouse for example you know supposedly inspired by his very turning up of a mouse's nest but then you take something like John Anderson Majo, which itself started out as a kind of really body kind of rude pub boys club type song, rewrites it completely and suddenly it becomes this really beautiful poem about growing old together. You know, so he's he's writing, you know, he's writing from the perspective of of a time in life which he didn't know, but he would never see. You know, he can write from the female voice, he can write from young, he can write from old, he can write from rich, he can write from poor. He can just take on so many different persona and and yeah. and find a truth in all of them. Can I ask then? Do you do you feel like the the representation that we have of Burns globally mm-hmm. and 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 in Scotland is? What do you what would you like to see happen? Do do you think that he's well represented at the moment, or do you think that that there's there's avenues to go down which would allow the public to to know a little bit more about them in, in, in a yeah, bit more detail. I think, I mean, it's really interesting because that's a question that 
really, I suppose the answer depends on where you are. Burns, you know, so it is that, that kind of reaction about people won't engage because they've got some sort of moral judgment about his drinking or about his womanising, you know. Yeah. But there's so many things that you can tap into that are so relevant and still, you know, so modern. And he has... You know, people will still see him as being, you know, this vernacular poet because he writes in Scots. Oh, well, I'm not going to try and read that because I'll not understand it, you know, because it's in Scots, you know, if he wrote in English, you know. But not everything that he wrote was in Scots, you know, and actually not everything of his that's worth reading is actually even poems or songs, you know. Dig in his letters, some of his letters are fantastic. You know, if you go to some place like Russia, for example, really massive in Russia, because of translations of his poems that were done in the 1930s and you know kind of during the communist era where they translated all the you know all the things like a man's a man for all that you know all these kind of big socialist ideas really popular in russia so they know him as that person and elsewhere he's known as the kind of romantic poet and elsewhere he's known as the poet of kind of scottish nationalism and i think what we really need is something that pulls all of that together and that's a lot of what the work we do in Glasgow is trying to do is trying to say you, you know yes he's this and he's this and he's this but he's all of them at the same time just like all yeah. of us are political and all of us are personal and all of us are professional yeah. it's all different aspects of the same thing yeah well and it is it is wild and often hard to navigate when there's such a breadth of work that like from poem to mm -hmm. poem like you said like he contradicts mm -hmm. himself sometimes and that happens speaking of him being huge in russia which i want to like read those translations yeah. then translated back to english and see like i i, I think studying translations mm -hmm. of things is its own fun puzzle of how then the translator interpreted yeah. the poetry before the reader even gets to interpret it um we have, uh, I have friends who have guested on my other podcast who have a whole season of their podcast dedicated to Sappho uh -huh. and multiple translations of her poetry. And it's really made me a massive nerd. <laughs> but there's, speaking of the, of him being a, uh, an icon for Russian communists, <laughs> um, the, cause he has, he has several poems about basically like fuck banks, right? Like capitalism bad fight financial life bad yeah so we get we get ideas coming out um you know the, the, we get ideas coming out like you know the the rank is but the guinea stamp you know this idea that you know giving somebody a label giving somebody a title it's just stamping them it's just branding them something you know the the the, the man's the goud for all that the man's the gold for all that you know it's it's the individual it doesn't matter whether you're wearing, you know, kind of ermines and velvet or whether you're wearing kind of rough homespun fabric and working in the fields, it's you as a person, you know, it's the idea of um, honour and personal integrity, you know, and, and, and actually this ordinary man in the street probably has more of that than the guy sitting up in the big castle at the top of the hill, you know. He's very much the idea of the, the, 
the ordinary man and very acutely aware of the imbalanced power dynamic in society and the problems that that can lead to because then you have things like the legal systems for example being weighted against the ordinary man in the street you know this is a guy remember when he grew up although he's writing political poetry he never had the vote you know he didn't wow. he didn't own land and he didn't have enough personal wealth to to actually have the vote in terms of who was representing him in parliament so you know he's very much about the ordinary man's voice should be heard and his poetry was one of the ways that that he could do that yeah but just i'm I'm just saying like the uh the contradiction the potential contradiction that you can see now looking back of writing something like lines written on a banknote and then also being an excise mm-hmm. man like these these two versions of burns can exist Absolutely. simultaneously he can write about the horrors and injustices of slavery mm-hmm. and then also have considered moving to jamaica and holding slaves like he he so i understand like the especially like the modern Modern, modern days looking back at how many yeah. kids he had yeah. and being like, okay, well, we're judging that uh, through a modern yeah. lens of, wow, that's, that's a lot. lot of children. And he must have, he oh, and some of them were not with his wife. He must have been sleeping yeah. around. What a horrible man. <laughs> and then also knowing his history and his life and also his breadth of work and saying like, these two things don't seem compatible, but we, I don't yeah, know. No. He is Robert Burns. He contains multitudes. Well, that's that's exactly <laughs> it. And I think I think when you I, you know actually just there when you use that phrase, you know the breadth of his work. I think that's a really important thing to remember is is breadth and think of it as on a continuum. It's on a timeline. And so yes, there is a point in his life, for example, where he considers taking a job in the West Indies and he would be working on a slave plantation. And yes, there is a point where he he writes something like a slave's lament, but those are two disparate points in time and we all change over the course of our lifetime you know he's writing this one as as a as a kind of 20 something last gasp you know gene armor's father's got a writ of arrest out for him to make sure that he doesn't do a bunk because she's pregnant and he's you know he's not really got any sort of security and things and then by the time he's writing a slave lament he's more secure in his life you know he's more mature he's lived a little he's grown up a little so it's also that kind of remembering you know what we we see it you know we see it now where people will be vilified on twitter for things that they said 10 years ago but you're a different person now you know yeah exactly and and that 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 impression you know you you put i think that's why people will put that impression on burns or he's a unionist or no no he's not he's a nationalist like he he it's because that's that person's agenda yeah and they're like they're like no no he said that once so that means he's he thinks like me um, whereby people, you should be able to change your mind as you grow older. And that's what politicians are up against. Like they'll say, yeah, but 10 years ago, you said you wouldn't back that. And now you're saying you're going to back it. And you're like, yeah, because things have changed. Things have changed. Things are different. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that's why the historical context of writing and interpret is important to reading, interpreting and understanding yes. the literature. Absolutely, absolutely. Just tied that up really nice. Back in a circle. I love circular stories. Here's the thing. Robert Burns is such... I When you started talking about Francis Dunlop, I was like, we could literally just talk yeah, about Francis yeah. Dunlop for this whole episode, yeah. and I would be perfectly yeah. happy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like the second you brought her up, I was like, ooh. And then I was like, wait, but we're, that's not what we're here to talk about. But also, so we could have, we could do a three part series on Robert Burns and, and still, still have, have just over. like danced. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can just plug myself here. A couple of years ago, I did a, a radio program with BBC Radio Scotland. And I think it's still it should still be available on, on the BBC iSounds all about Burns and Francis Dunlop. So if you want to learn more about that, then you can find it in there. Excellent. Yes. We'll probably share that oh. link on our socials. Yes. Wow, what a wonderful pivot, though, <laughs> into plugging socials and other things. <laughs> Uh, Moira, is there a place on the internet that people can go to find out more about you or to follow you that they that you would like to share? So you can find me as an individual on Twitter. I am Moira E. Hansen. You, if you want to come and see more of what we do in the Centre for Robert Burns Studies, you can also find us on Twitter. We are at Glasgow Burns and we're on Facebook as Glasgow Burns C21. We do, because of what the past year has been, a lot of our events now have pivoted to online events. So, you know, we te- we're doing things on Zoom we've got a link through our website to our youtube channel you can see some past events that we've done come along and learn more about burns and if you'd really like to learn with me then we offer a free three-week course on future learn that runs in january and july so we'll get the link for that sorry i live in america nothing educational is ever yep, free absolutely free <laughs> like i'm like what? three weeks robert burns poems what songs of legacy this? and you can come and learn a bit more about his life a bit more about his work a bit more about that global influence and, and kind of how he's still known today and um yeah we'll get that link below that you can sign up and maybe i'll see you in january um i i'm in there and i facilitate the discussion boards in that so it's good fun um i have plans for january now <laughs> Excellent. Listeners, you can find all of these uh, all of these links in the show notes. I will make sure that they are all there. Can, can I ask Very can important. I ask before we finish this this episode? You know, Moira, you know so much about Robert Burns, right? Mm-hmm. Who would you cast to play him in a <sighs> in, in a film? Because oh. there's been there's been actors mentioned in the past. I won't and I won't I won't like you know I won't say who, just in case. That... Yeah, there had. Do you know? There's been kind of things on and off, and 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 whisperings and pipelines, and we've never had a really good film or kind of limited series about Burns. Exactly. I think. Do you know what I? As much as there's an attraction, a marketing attraction to going for a big name, I really like the idea of taking an unknown, maybe even from Burns's kind of southwest Scotland Ayrshire area. I mean. See if we went back, like, I don't know, 10 years or 15 years and Sam Hewen wasn't doing Outlander, then we, we would have him. Um, but <laughs> let's go for another unknown. Let's give them, you know, the, their shot at the big time. And then we can get the big names in for, you know, for playing the likes of Francis. and Francis Dunlop. Yeah. And get somebody like, I don't know, I don't know who would get in there either. Because I think an unknown actor is a brilliant shout because... His life is so brilliant yep. that 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 speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. And well, and you could you could the crown it and have a different actor for uh, like he doesn't get he doesn't too, get too old. old. No, uh, but you could get somebody who play. You could get somebody who play him kind of up through you know up through the teenage years into that kind of early fame, and then you get somebody who takes him from that kind of mid twenties through a little bit beyond. Yep. 
How old was he when he died? 37. God, still so, so young. So, yeah, so young, so, so young. And another one of those kind of great and tragic losses, and you wonder if he'd, you know, if he'd lived longer, what would he have gone on to do? He was very much immersed in his collecting and editing, you know, kind of Scottish folk songs at the time. There's kind of little hints that maybe he was thinking about trying to write something for the theatre, but we don't know if anything would have ever come of that. Or maybe he would have just given it all up and retired to a quiet Father life with Jean. Children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that's interesting though. Oh my goodness, I'm just. Let's just. Can we just cast um, Tilda Swinton as oh, Francis? She'd be. Oh, that's a great <sighs> shout, by the way. That's an interesting idea. I've been really stuck on who's Francis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean, the, the, the images that we have of Francis, I mean, she, when you see her when she's younger, you know, she's really quite an attractive girl. But when you see her when she's older, 13 children would do this. She's quite matronly, I think is the, the, the nicest way to describe her. So Tilda Swinton would be a really interesting choice because she just doesn't, you know, we're kind of being blind to physical appearance there then, aren't we? I just, but also let's give Tilda Swinton all the roles. This has become a Tilda Swinton uh, fan podcast. <laughs> you can find us on the internets at uh, Under the Kilt Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. You can find us at Under the Kilt Pod. I should say for those looking for Moira on Twitter, Hansen is spelled S E N. Yes. It's an it's E-N, E-N, not an it's O-N. It's a Norwegian depending. rather than a Swedish spelling. Okay. Is that the... I didn't know yeah. the difference. Like, My husband's that... grandfather was I'm Norwegian, learning. so... Yes. Uh, our producer is messaging me right now to say it's the mbop spelling of Hansen. It's... Or not... Sorry, not, not, the, Han- <laughs> not the mbop spelling of Hansen. My bad. <laughs> uh, which is forever how I will think of things. Thank you, <laughs> Kathleen. <laughs> That's that's everything. Please message us your dream casting for uh, Robbie Burns and for Francis Dunlop. I want to know who you guys want to cast for young Robbie. I want to know who you want to cast for older, o- Robbie. older Robbie. I want to know who you want to cast for his wife. Gilbert. Jean? Yep. Yeah, and we need a Gilbert. And I want to know who's, who's Gilbert. Gilbert. We need to know. <laughs> and Eddie Redmayne as Gilbert. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, he might do a good uh, Scottish I mean, accent. Who knows? Who know? I I certainly don't. Uh, <laughs> but until next time, stay breezy. This episode of Under the Kilt was edited and produced by Kathleen Mueller Mason. Original theme by Tyler Collins, aka Two Meter Man. Additional music by Gareth Spin. Original art by Sarah Cruz. Thank you again to our guest, Dr Moira Hansen, and to the girls at Shared History. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.